I can do things that wet without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Coney Island, world's biggest barrel of fun. Anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Mark. You get the whole show now, you hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the wonderful world of theme park design, that is. You've just set sail on a journey of discovery and discussion with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and rolling on the river with me, as always, is theme park designer, master planner, and chief creative officer of Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. Where are we off to today, Mel? Well, Freddie, in the themed entertainment world, we've been called the purveyors of possibility and builders of the seemingly impossible. But possible may or may not always be feasible. How did the Walt Disney's of the world of today decide if building a new theme park not only makes sense, but makes dollars and cents? One of the things that we look for in potential clients is the willingness to rely on experts who will do the homework for them to evaluate if their dream is going to be a financial success or a flop. Well, today we're going to hear from two of the industry's leading feasibility experts. We've got the the killer combo of a father-son duo of Don and Doug Stewart of Economic Consulting Services. Well, this is going to be really good. Alrighty, folks, keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the boat, because this episode is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. Well, Mel, one of the great stories of theme park lore is uh, Walt Disney's decision to uh, put the his big uh, dream of Disneyland in that spot in Anaheim, right where the Five and Harbor meet, and uh, that goes way back. You know, he he wanted to first have it on his studio property, and then across the street in that little sliver of. Uh, uh, of property next to the studio. Um, but that wasn't going to do it. There wasn't going to be enough room for all that he wanted to do. And so he Every started Every time looking. I drive by the animation building, I, I wonder what Mickey Mouse Park would have been like. Oh, man, it would have been sliver. incredible. You know, I've, I've actually, <laughs> this is a side note, but I've always wanted to get one of our um, our friends who knows how to do uh, uh, spatial animation <laughs> to create, recreate the park based on the actual elevations that are actually out there. You know, some of those early drawings, take the map. I'm sure we've got listeners out there that... Uh, have got time on their oh, hands yeah. to model it up. That would be us. a great model. Well, anyway, you know, he he looks around, he he seeks out the experts, and I would just love to hear you talk. I know uh, Buzz Price is a hero, of yours too. So, um, you know, he uh, helps him to decide on this little uh, square of land in Anaheim in the Orange Groves. You know, um, Buzz uh, is the not only a Disney legend, but you know, our entire themed entertainment association have chosen to name our Lifetime Achievement Awards after him. So I guess the guy's kind of a big deal. I know Walt definitely appreciated him. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that same uh, uh, that same effort went into uh, locating the spot for his, uh, you know, World of Tomorrow, his uh, experimental prototype community of tomorrow to go out into the Florida project, uh, eventually searching for that right spot. Well, yeah, and a lot of people don't really understand the, the, the importance and the significance of what uh, Buzz Price invented with uh, his roller coaster math uh, approach <laughs> of figuring out, um, again, not just locations uh, that would be strategic for uh, virtually every, not only Disney project, but really almost every theme park and World's Expo, uh, World's Fair projects, and, um, but really um, assisted with things like sizing, telling, you know, mm-hmm. Walt, okay, this is how many. Uh, transactions per hour and capacity you need for food and beverage. Uh, this is the amount of standing room area you need, the number of acres, the, the size of the parking lot. Um, and so, you know, to the design community, uh, architects, this this concept of what we call spatial scripting or programming is so fundamental and important to, uh, you know, kind of the, it's almost the industrial engineering of the thing to making these things you know, uh, work and flow, and uh, certainly in in uh, kind of a post-COVID reality where all those numbers are getting thrown out of whack with social distancing yeah, yeah. rules. I mean, it, it, these these things are 
more important than than ever. But again, it was uh, it was Buzz Price and um, his organization that uh, ended up figuring out all that math and, and guiding and shaping so much of the industry. And uh, Don was there um, back in the early days and eventually became president of uh, Buzz's uh, original uh, company. Um, and then uh, went on to found his own company, ECS, who's been a, a partner of ours at Storyland for a number of years. And we've probably got about a half dozen projects that we're actively working on together. So, so pleased to bring this discipline to uh, our fans that don't always get to hear from these guys. Yeah. And we, you know, you kind of catch yourself asking the question, you know, if you've got a great idea for a theme park, some sort of attraction, some sort of thing, you know, you can't just rely on if they build it, if you build it, they will come. You have to put some numbers down and some space down and some understanding of really what the capacity, what the, what the community, what the surrounding community can handle um, and support uh, for uh, something like that. And uh, our guests today are the, are two of the leading experts in that in economic feasibility for destinations and recreation projects worldwide. So uh, honestly, for decades, they've been, helping dozens of developers like Storyland, like you said, uh, to say yes to the right address for their theme park dreams. So, and don't worry, this is fun. They'll do the math for us. (laughs) All right. It's time for our interview with Don and Doug Stewart. Hey guys, so great to finally uh, get you in studio here. We've been collaborators and partners for years, but, uh, welcome to the blue sky loft. Uh, uh, boy, what a powerful father-son combo. Dynamic uh, duo. <laughs> I'm so excited about today's conversation because we are spanning decades with this multi-generational saga <laughs> that is... Uh, yeah, I feel like we're in ECS. for a real treat. Yeah. So. Don, I don't know if you remember when we first met. I mean, back at the, the day, um, there's an industry legend, uh, mutual friend, I think one of your old bosses, uh, Buzz Price, who... Yes. Uh, yeah. In our humble little cottage industry, uh, we've named our Lifetime Achievement mm-hmm. Award yeah. after this guy. That, yeah. That's what a big deal he was. Um, and at the time that we met, I remember his son, Dave, uh, who also is kind of a big deal, a yeah. Harvard-trained architect, was uh-huh. actually working for me. Uh, yeah, right. yeah. And so I think he introduced us at our yeah. first cocktail party. Exactly, party. yeah. But uh, tell me, uh, how far back did you go? When did you meet Buzz? Well, I went to work there in... I'm just trying to think. We talked about this earlier, but I, know, it was 50 years ago, sort of. So, so it would have been, it would have been like, uh, I'm trying to think the year would have been. Mid 60s, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was kind of mid 60s. Yeah, what a early, kind of seminal 60s. era. You know, I mean, obviously Disneyland had been uh, kind of established and was on its way, but uh, I know that you were able to kind of play uh, in the sandbox early enough to be involved with uh, thinking about the East Coast for Disney and yes. Florida and Epcot. What a Well, I, you know, I kind of went there and had to work three or four years and learn the biz, if you will. And uh, the, uh, not last, I mean, I would say about four or five years, been doing well. And then the, they sold the, you know, the, they sold the company to, to a big New York stock exchange company. And so the three owners, Buzz Price being the, the principal, and uh, two other guys uh, left because they sold you know, sold out. And the crazy part was that about the sale that, that was really interesting is that they sold for, uh, I forgot how many shares, but they sold for $3 million essentially, okay? And and so they thought, well, that, in those days, that was a big hit. But but they had to stay for, I don't know, three or four years to run the place before, you know, before this other company. The other company was, which is now, Oh, another big, you know, yeah. another big alphabet in, suit in, company, in, yeah. in, engineering company. And uh, anyway, it was in those days. What happened was the owners were leaving, and I was kind of an up and coming guy in the business that could sell and could see half these guys were, you know, they were eggheads kind of a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but they got them all from. They always hired everybody from Stanford MBAs, basically. So they're all smart. And a half of them were, you know, rich kids that couldn't find the front door, but they could figure <laughs> out the answer, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so then when, the, when they, the, uh, the three owners left, I was automatically, you know, vaulted into being part of those guys. <clears throat> and uh, so I was early on, pretty much, it would have been, you know, I'm trying to think, this would have been around 70 maybe or something. This happened. And... Uh, 
anyway, and then then the company went on. We had a good name, and and uh, this is economics research. So yeah, ERA, ERA, right? yeah, economics research. Buzz Price started that. He was he, he was an interesting guy, smart guy, and uh, you know he could. You know, he could go to the opera and, uh, you know, and the beer bar the same night and be the head guy, you know, that kind of a guy. Yeah, he was fun. Real smart. And uh, so, anyway, he... Well, we should probably step back yeah, for yeah, any yeah, yeah. listeners that don't yeah. know Buzz Price. I mean, um, I know for any one of our clients that walk in the door um, that aren't already in the business, yeah. uh, it's it's kind of required reading <laughs> to kind of read his... Uh, his story, I think it's uh, Walt Disney's Revolution by the Numbers. Uh, I, I just call it the roller coaster math uh, yeah. textbook. But he really kind of helped kind of create uh, a whole genre and would love to have you guys kind of just educate us yeah, on, he was what, on the what that ground field floor. is. Yeah, he was an original yeah, guy. And, 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 and he was thick with Walt. They were, you know, when I went there, we did a lot of work for for Disney, even other than theme parks and stuff, because if they bought a ranch, it was a family company. So every time they had to go look for Ski Hill or something they're going to buy or get involved in, we had to go check it out. So we got a lot of different things in those days. I imagine he was kind of a, almost a mediator between Walt and Roy, even. You know, Roy might hear some yeah, cockamamie uh, idea to have something that would actually yeah, substantiate I, I, or make it maybe. less scary. Well, they probably looked at him to say, What do you think? Kind of right. Because they were arguing with each other, maybe. But uh, yeah, I, I wasn't in that dynamic, but the, uh, yeah, it was good. Buzz was highly thought of, of course. We used to go, um, and they were all involved in, oh, you know, the whole design thing, the, the design college they were trying to put together in those days. Yeah. And so oh, yeah. every year they would have Cal a, Arts. Cal yeah. Arts, yeah. yeah. And every year they'd have a, you know, a fundraiser at one of their big houses. And, you know, so I used to go every year with my wife or kids or somebody and, you know, buy a picture or something of the thing from one of their, their artists. And, wow. uh, yeah, it was interesting. The, yeah, we so they were you know they were involved heavily. Well, the, well and, and again, Buzz Price really was the guy that helped land the sites for Disneyland. Yes, uh, Disney all of it, yeah, all of that. Yeah. And and one of the uh, his partners, Bill uh, Lund, was he married one of the Disney daughters? Right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So Sharon, yeah. Sharon, yeah, yeah. The, uh, you know, that goes way back. That, that's yeah. a real in. Yeah, that is an <laughs> in. That's kind of a that's in. A big in, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was at a party one time, a bunch of Stanford guys, they, they, they knew each other, and they said, uh, gee, uh, Bill Lund's getting a divorce from Sharon. And the guy said, you can't rule out insanity. What the hell did you do that for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, again, to talk about the industry, um, yeah. you know, and, and you know, we, we may have to have Dave on to talk about his dad. I mean, that's a whole episode yeah, sure. and, and definitely a, a, a legend. <coughs> but really, again, to familiarize, I mean, we've we've had different aspects of the industry represented here uh, with guests from the design side, mm -hmm. from a little touch on operations, programming, architecture. But um, a lot of folks uh, may not understand how foundational um, what you guys do yeah. Uh, yeah. is to what, uh, you know, the design, the creative side, you know, you create the the, the magic box of possibilities that we all live in, basically, yeah. uh, by establishing the three dimensions of, say, really, in our case, budget, scope, schedule, uh, feasibility. Yes. Can you kind of give us kind of a one-on-one download brain dump of, of how you would describe kind of your scope and what you do well, and what you bring? <clears throat> I mean, when we get involved with most just basically architects, and designers, um, yeah, we like to think that we're important to the point where we size it, which is really important. And so, the, and that's all kind of based on the market. So our steps, in a way, are you, know, you look at the site, you know, see how, how close to the market is it, and how you know how accessible it is. And then uh, once we get the market size and, and all that, then we look at comparable situations. What are other parks do with their markets? Mm -hmm. And kind of overlay those. And, and at some point, it kind of becomes fairly clear that we're looking at a million here, or two million, or whatever it is, that, that kind of thing. And then uh, once that happens, we have, we have to make a decision based on all that information. How many people do you think are going to come to this thing? And what's the attendance going to be over mm -hmm. time? Mm -hmm. So once you do that, then that tells you a lot. That says, Okay, the seasonality is one thing because where you, where you have it, if it's cold or not, and all that sort of thing. And then, uh, but if it's going to be you know, a summer-only park or a year-round park, those are factors that come into it. 
Uh, but then once you do that, then you can say, gee, it's gonna, let's just say it's going to be a million people. Well, then we can figure out what, what's going to be the peak month and the peak week and the peak day and the peak hour. Yeah. So you can get it down to that. So it means, gee, we're going to have 15,000 people here at once, let's that, just say. That's crazy. It's I know. so amazing that and you can once get you do down that, to that, then you metrics. Can, once you do that, then you can say, okay, we have to have what we call entertainment capacity. Yeah. So how many rides, you know, the, the, the roller coaster does 2,000 an hour and the, the little ride only does 200 an hour, all that kind of thing. You have to have shows and you can kind of figure this all into how many units of ride capacity per hour you need. At, at that point, it means you can entertain these people. You know, there's rules of thumb, but kind of a once an hour, once and a half an hour, depending on the time and, you know, if it's Wednesday or Sunday or whatever. And oh, that's the other thing. We get into during the week, oh, the weekend days like Saturday and Sunday do about 25% each of the week. And the rest of them do 10% of the week. So that tells you why the, you, you don't want to go on the weekend if it's, yeah. if it's a crowd problem. Uh, and then, and then how many people are going to be there? How many people per car so you can figure out how big the parking lot is? It's a sizing kind of thing. And then at some point, you can say, okay, that's worth staying. Just pick a number. It's worth staying six hours, let's say. Yeah. Well, and these things are getting so much per hour in, 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 in um, revenue. So you can say, okay, we're going to get, I don't know, pick a number again, but we're going to get six hours a day and we're going to get 30 bucks an hour or something. Yeah. And, and so that means we're going to get 20 bucks or 18 or whatever it is. And then, and then the food and beverage and stuff on top of that. So that gets you to the amount it is. And then how many people are there, that kind of tells you what your revenue is going to be. And then the operating costs are all based on actual operating costs percentage-wise. Yeah. Most parks that run right make about 30 points. 30% operating profit. So you can say, gee, we're going to get $100 million, we're going to make $33 million in profit. Yeah. And that tells you, you can back into, that tells you what you can pay and get a certain return on yeah. your investment. Yeah. So that tells you, gee, we can make, this is the budget if you want to get this return. Yeah. So I, it, it kind of gets into the whole thing. I it, grew up, you know, inventing uh, theme parks in my head and oh, okay. on paper and in my backyard yeah. and all, all that all idea. That, yeah. And um, so this is the question. This is a question. Could I actually get people to come to this thing? Or could I actually make money off of it? The one that I was making in my backyard probably wouldn't have made money off of it. Let me just you know, let me put it that way. It was way too dangerous. <laughs> yeah. I would have spent all, all the money on yeah, legal uh, fees, legal yeah. fees um, repairing people's spines. And that wouldn't have been fun. Um, so uh, so that's, that's really what it is. When you, when you talk about feasibility, when, you do, when somebody is setting out to invest in an area, a region, a space um, and they want to put something like a theme park in that space or a retail space and so you're the guys who answer that question you know for me it's always been impressive the scope you know that you're zooming out at the level of hey yeah. what what you know like in the case I know uh, with Euro Disney Disneyland Paris um, you guys landed the plane on where that thing should go, like which country, you know, we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So that that's kind of the zoomed out scale, then all the way down to zooming into, uh, you know, what kind of, uh, how many POS stations do we need to, to pay for the fast food stand, or yeah. you know, how many yeah. people do we need to stack in the line? Yes. Uh, you know, how many square feet of uh, pre-show, post-show, you know, kind of uh, okay. retail space. So just that idea of zooming in, why zooming you, out. Why don't you give them some spreadsheets yeah. is really, you know, people don't understand how much of that plays into the bo the creative box that we as designers live within. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> talking a little bit about feasibility again for just a moment. Um, it's really kind of a question of is, is this idea going to work at this location? We're right. working for not only the architects, but also the investors, the financial people who are going to want to make money on this project. Um, the definition of feasibility is uh, very, it varies quite widely. Um, some people want to make 35%, get out, have their money back in three years at one side. On the other side, we're going to put all the money in. We don't care if we get any money back. We just don't want to subsidize the operations. Mm -hmm. And you almost have to quantify the values exactly, of the, yeah. the owner, developer. Yeah, what does feasibility What's mean to you? To, right. You know, yeah. Is this a legacy project? Is exactly, this a yeah. Pure short-term investment, long-term investment. Yeah. And then we'll also find, you know, does it work in this location? It's not necessarily yes or no, but a question of sizing and how big is it. I mean, to put Disneyland in Lawrence, Kansas is probably not a great idea. It's probably not feasible. Mm -hmm. But something works in Lawrence, Kansas. Yeah. So when we have a client who owns a 
100 acre ranch in Lawrence, Kansas says, I want to make Disneyland, we're like, you may want to rethink that scale a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's we're right. kind of doing that in uh, some of our projects. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. I wanted to kind of go back to the the roots of uh, your company, uh, ECS, and I mean, uh, I mean, after I know you helped, uh, you know, when you were at ERA laying the plan on where the Florida project should go yes. for Disney, right around Epcot Center's opening in 82, you guys got yes. started. Um, what were uh, some of the early projects that really kind of, uh, you know, launched you off strongly? Uh, what do you mean with, uh, when you launched ECS, ECS in 82? Okay. I'm trying to think what the first ones were, but Jacques Cousteau, had, right? Well, yeah, we did all the work for, for Jacques Cousteau. I, I, oh, one fun. of my partners was, was wow. had, had him as a client, and uh, tell us about that. What was that about? Well, Cousteau wanted to make you know attractions in addition to his TV program and all <clears throat> all that, and so one of the projects we early won was he wanted to make a you know an aquarium virtually or you know a seas kind of theme thing in in Paris and this I got a really interesting story to tell you about that but uh, I had two other I had two partners one of the one of the guys was like the smartest guy in the that was ever been in the business really good guy and the other guy was he had come from a company we purchased and he was a nice guy and he was pretty good salesman and all that but we used to kid because the the, the the one guy was really smart he didn't like the other guy very well and so we used to have this whole thing with you know, full of information, and the, the one that he didn't like, he says he had uh, analytical dyslexia. He couldn't <laughs> get the answer right, sort of, yeah, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. And so we had screwed around with that for a while. He finally left. Uh, but uh, The smart guy or the... No, the smart guy stayed for okay. you know, <laughs> until the end, yeah. Uh, the uh, Anyway, we, he had a project with Jacques Cousteau in Paris. And one of the things that was hilarious about this was, you know, he did the job and they made it and it was it was fine and all that stuff. And we all had to check each other's work and stuff, so it never got really crazy. Uh, what? No. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, I forgot about oh. that. And um, anyway, one of the things that was really funny about this, what the smart partner, <clears throat> uh, what happened was in those days you you had to take you know flight out and just. You made a mistake. It was agonizing to, to change this. It took you forever. Wordsmithing. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so, uh, the one guy, the the one partner that that had, because was a client, he called it the Ile or the Ile de France, and he spelled it I L L E. And so, and it's just spelled with one L. So he had to go back through the whole thing and take it apart. And so the, the other partner that was smart said, I think we just got to get a, a, like an aquarium tank and put an eel in it and say the eel, eel of France. It's <laughs> 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 great. I mean, those were, that's for other things in our business that were interesting. When I was at ERA, we had a huge, not huge, but we had maybe 10 or 15 ladies that just typed 100 miles an hour. Wow. Because they were, you know, in those days, you, it, there was no, you know, there was no computers or anything. It was all yeah. before word they processing. Were work, so they you were, were your actually, word processing. Yeah, you're, you're looking at it. You're actually on a typewriter. Cut and paste, you would actually cut out <laughs> yeah, yeah, lines and paste and them up. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, it wasn't Control-C, Control-V. Yeah. No, yeah, just in the, come, you know, coming up with a 100-page report. And, and then we had, a, you know, we had people that were editing, and, oh, God, it was nuts. But anyway. Uh, and you're, you're doing this for some kind of crazy carnies, right? I mean, we were talking some, about... Some of them are, and like some of them... Like George Melia, you know, Well, the, George, George Millet wasn't really a carny, but he, <laughs> he was, you know, he was a real innovator in the business. But, yeah, we worked for carnivals. One of yeah. my best clients ever, a good guy, was Connie Fernandez. He ran the carnival in, in Hawaii, and then he got into a bunch of arcades and did great. But, I mean, there, you know, so we kind of started the the smallest entertainment attraction to the biggest. You know, yeah, that, that yeah. kind of well, thing. I want to talk about George just because he was such a character. I mean, this is the guy that yeah. created SeaWorld. He created the whole water park industry with Wet n' Wild. With, with yeah. your, I mean, you guys were there from the start of all that, right? Yeah, I did study for, for Wet n' Wild in, in uh, Florida on International Boulevard. And, uh, yeah, that was kind of – yeah, George was a good – he was a good guy. And then later on, uh, Doug and I worked – this is interesting – um, the city of San Diego owned the site for SeaWorld. And so then there was going to be, uh, anyway, their lease was coming up. And I guess it was, was Bush. Yeah, I heard Bush. Or uh, originally, uh, yeah, Bush was a Britannica bomb, you know, right? Bush yeah. had it at the time. Oh, gotcha. And so there was a big argument. Uh, they are doing a... Um, Actually, they wanted to put in a uh, roller coaster that was above the stipulated height, mm -hmm. and that triggered a renegotiation of the lease. Of the lease, oh, okay. yes. And so the 
So we were involved, and then they had arbitrators to do it. Wow. And so we had to show up and testify. So we were hired by the city, and ERA, the company I, I left, was hired by you know, Bush because they were trying to well, find out what their lease fun. was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> and anyway, to make a long story short, we won. So the city got another couple of million dollars a year in rent, to make a long story short. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so we knew all about everything that was going on at SeaWorld at that time. Wow. And a lot of people <laughs> may not realize that he also, in addition to starting Wet n Wild at SeaWorld, he was involved with uh, the origins of kind of one of our local kind of hometown thrill parts, uh, Magic Mountain. Yes, from the beginning. Yeah, that was, I worked on that. Boy, that was an interesting story because uh, that was really at the end of the world. <laughs> that was a long way from L.A. Yeah. in those days. There was nothing. <laughs> it else. was exactly there was Six Flags, <laughs> Los no, Angeles. It wasn't, right. it wasn't Valencia at that yeah. time, you know. But uh, I, I went to the Ophelia, in fact. It was great. And uh, I remember one of the rides broke down, and, you know, George was on the ride or something. It was that kind of stuff. And oh, wow. In the old days, all the trees weren't up yet, and it yep. was still kind of, you know, raw. But uh, it worked eventually. Well, I know than, you did that in partnership with uh, uh, Duell Associates. And, yes, uh, Duell Design. One of our mutual friends, Ira West. Ira West, who, uh, yes, of course. had a chance to yeah, interview. He's a longtime uh, friend and partner kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. and um, you guys did a lot of work with Ira and Duell over the years and really helped spread the, the, the particularly the regional theme park model out, <laughs> not only across the U.S. with uh, Marriott and... Uh, Six Flags, uh, but internationally, right? With uh, yes, we did, we did a lot of work. With In fact, they were our main client at, at that time. Wow. I mean, we did all the studies for them, and so and they were, and we worked well together because they kind of understood the sizing and I mean, you know, in 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 your business, even if you you, know, you can make it for a hundred million or two hundred, whatever you guys want, you know, kind of thing. So you had to have some justification for that to get the financing, basically. And uh, yeah, and I was, he was savvy about how that all worked and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I've experienced some of the, the yeah. fruits of, I guess, your collaboration, you know, from yeah. Everland starting off as kind of a kind of a patchwork uh, into really kind of a world-class destination resort theme park. Yeah, uh, we did. We, yeah. we were involved in doing that, that front gate kind of thing. That kind of put it on the, on the, uh, on the you know, it made it a theme park basically yeah Before, it's a really strong just, first impression it was just a big and the other that site was kind of crazy it used to be a pig farm that was owned by the owner of Samsung wow and so he <laughs> said oh we got this farm out here I think we want to make you know some attraction so but the 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 site itself was real kind of hilly and stuff, and so it got to be kind of tricky I had no idea. tricky what to do with how it works kind of thing they south korea and, and Japan especially um they have year-round parks even when it's zero degrees and blizzards i was in wow. i was at um, soul land in december on the roller coaster it was a blizzard it was the coldest i have ever been in my life <laughs> yeah. and these guys actually have more employees than guests but yeah, they want to yeah. stay open year-round because they want to have their employees e- employed, employed oh, that's neat. year-round and um everland when you're saying it's hilly it's super hilly it's like 15 degree grades wow with stone um ground cover yeah it is so slippery oh. in winter <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> yeah, you're holding on to the buildings that you're going through kind but it was yeah it's it was bitter cold during the winter you yeah know, you're just outside of seoul yeah it, i've worked on seoul land and and kind of doing the same yet? thing yeah with it we also the, the upgrade from everland <laughs> to upgrade that kind of yeah. pseudo regional uh park and zoo into kind of a world-class Destination. Yeah, we did a lot of work with Solan. Yeah, that's yeah. A, it's a great site yeah. um, to, to look at. Well, it's in town, kind of, too. It yeah. helps. But, you know, yeah, everyone's anyway, well, you know there. all about it. But yeah. It's, yeah. How do you tell a story when people listen with more than their ears? Stories change lives. They make us remember, but only when they're felt and not just heard. Storyland Studios builds the impossible. We turn big ideas into reality. We tell stories in three dimensions to stir the senses so you can walk into places you've only seen in your dreams, in real life and real time. Storyland's artists, architects, and artisans take stories out of the imagination and build tangible dreams that leave lasting impressions and memories that endure for years. 
What's your story? Storyland Studios is themed entertainment, destination design, production, and fabrication. Connect with the team at Storyland Studios to get started building your impossible dream today. Visit storylandstudios.com or call now, 800-218-1932. That's 800-218-1932. Storyland Studios, your big ideas, best ally. And then, you know, your work uh, with Duel continued. Uh, one of the last U.S. collaborations probably, well, a couple of them from Gil, uh, Bonfante, Gilroy Gardens, which I know Ira said was his favorite park, I think. Just Bonfante was, Gardens. That's a, good, a, special, a great park. But yeah, yeah, there's a lot of heart and soul in that the, whole park. Uh, yeah, that all got to be an overinvestment is what, what happened. Yeah. Mr. Bonfante was a great guy, but he was going to make this dream. And that was well, that's the where, it, you know, he kind of wasn't exactly. He said he exactly, had 20 million and said he had 90 or something. It was that. It made uh, it to make that. I think famous. we did what six separate studies updates on that part. Yeah, we kept changing because he kept thinking it was going to do better than we thought it was going to do. And yeah, you're right. Well, he originally wanted to make a botanical gardens. Plus, Price did it, the original original study for that. Told him mechanical gardens is not going to make any money out here. You got to get some ride capacity. You got to get some entertainment value. And that's kind of when we actually ended up coming on board and Dual it, came on board and kind of. Expanded it to a you know a regional real regional park, mm. yeah. And but it still kept its um, botanical roots. It's got circus trees and there's a lot of um, you know botanical gardens and whatnot as well. It came out beautiful, but Don said it was like seventy million dollars more than it should have been. Mm. Well, you know, it's easy to think of um, kind of the standard operating procedure or development process as this perfect linear sequence that. You know, you guys, someone would be smart enough to hire you guys as the experts, size it, cite it, uh, that uh, the owner would listen to everything you're saying, <laughs> that, yeah, <he laughs> that the designer would, <laughs> yeah. you know, do everything according to plan and that it would operate exactly according to plan. But I know that, you know, that's just not the real world and projects go wild sometimes and uh, kind of like girls gone wild. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> yeah. when I think of projects uh, like Disneyland Paris, um, or uh, MGM Grand Adventures, uh, you know, that didn't exactly go, go according to plan. Would love your perspective on the, you know, the brain damage you've incurred, the lessons learned, what went right, what, what are some of those big picture kind of takeaways from some of those infamous uh, stories of, of projects gone well, we did sideways. F- we did a fair amount of work in, in Vegas, and that the theme park we did was MGM Grand. And they just, they're, well, they're, 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 they're to, they get you to entertain you, and then they'll get your money at the table, basically. Right. Is what's so they'll give you food and cheap rooms and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we worked for Bally's. They, have a, they had a sunken parking lot in front, and so we did a study that it took that away, and they made a, a parking garage, and we had a moving sidewalk coming into the place. And, much, and many of their top people, the pit bosses and stuff, that kind of ran the stuff. They, they really didn't want us to put in a moving sidewalk because, you know, we already got our set people. They all got money, and we know who we're dealing with, and we don't want a bunch of, you know, locals coming here on that thing. Well, it turns out that anybody that comes in is going to lose money. Hello. And, yeah. and so and it worked. We worked great there. But, the uh, in fact, I went to a meeting uh, with the, the, the owner, actually, and uh, – because uh, he wanted me to sit through some a meeting he was having with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and those guys who did Planet, oh, Hollywood. Planet Hollywood. Yeah, he just said, "Just listen, and I'll talk to you afterwards." You know that kind of thing. And, and uh, yeah, they had a whole. They were all dressed with the same shirt, and you know it was a big <laughs> blah 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 deal. But they wanted to put their sign, make you know, make valleys this big, and their sign huge, and all that kind of stuff. And it just didn't make any sense. But so they didn't do it. But uh, yeah, they, you know that kind of thing. We yeah, we working with them as to what they had to do kind of. so what's it like to tell disney where to put uh an entire destination theme resort like disneyland you know in europe like when you're deciding between germany spain france like how do you well, negotiate we the pros and cons of all that we stuff? were just asked to do uh, an analysis in europe we, we want to expand to europe so what where's, where do you recommend it was the top three places we can go, which we gave them. We gave them all the information. I think the market was growing, you know, everything that had to do with the market. 
and then said, oh, you know, probably Paris, is, at least it's, it's a good inter- intercept point. Barcelona's better weather, but Barcelona, Spain's not quite so uh, stable as a country in, in, in terms, because they're all worried about that, too, you know, what's yeah, going to happen. Yeah, yeah you know, and, and, so, and Germany was cold, and even though it was stable, and, and that's where all the rich, all the money was. So anyway, they, it's up to you. Here's all the information you decide, and they decided to go to Paris. But, of course, in Paris, they went, they got a site that, out of town, pretty far out of town, but they got the train to go to it so you can get to it and mm-hmm. stuff. But most people that go to Paris are they're going to Paris. They're not mm-hmm. going to Disney. Right. And so but while we're here for a week, yeah, let's go to Disney one day. That's kind of what's the whole deal. Still is. That's why the park has always been the number one draw in Europe, but uh, the, yeah. the hotels were the kind of the anchor that dragged. <laughs> well, that well, they had to get that, you know, they, and it's kind of worked its way out. It took a while to do that. It wasn't gonna be just like their other parks because yeah. of that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I uh, but Paris has ultimately kind of worked out, but it's been a struggle for them, early on particularly. Um, and and there were, the whole European scene's different than than U.S. I mean, there's a bunch of parks that are family parks that are all over the place that we've worked for. There's, oh, I don't know, there's a bunch of them anyway. They're mostly family parks. Once we worked for... Uh, uh, what's his name? Luke Florenzone. That was Belleward. Belleward Park, and that his he inherited that from his dad. It's in Ypres, Belgium, which is the, the site of the biggest you know battle in the war in the First World War. Mm-hmm. He said when they were digging up the dirt, putting in rides and stuff that we had to expand with. He said they found helmets that were German from the old days and all wow. that kind of stuff. Wow. Yeah, uh, but it recently was an animal park. And so his dad had, and so then they had to make a park around that to make a long story short. And it's been you know, a wow. successful park. But but parks there are different than the. I, I remember one time I was there, and and uh, they had. They, they weren't quite as interested in the rides, I guess. I mean, they had a bunch of buses of people from Paris were coming in, and they were all kind of middle-aged to older, and they had an oompa band, and they were having a you know, $50 lunch, and they were all dancing and doing all this stuff, and it was not, it was a whole different crowd than we were used to. We used to go in and ride a bunch of rides, have a good time, and buy a hamburger, and, you yeah, know, right. hot dog or something, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, so it was a little different crowd, but that's, and, and that's expanded pretty much along the same lines as the U.S. over time. Most of these parks are pretty pretty nice now. Well, I'd love your take on kind of the industry um, as it's kind of, I, I think of it almost bifurcating, you know, between the global destinations like Disney Universal mm-hmm. and, again, the regional model and the parks. Um, we're we're uh, one of our design partners and clients is Cedar Fair, you know, and yes. we were talking about how you guys helped site some of the original yeah. Marriott parks mm-hmm. um, that, again, had some of that Disney DNA, some of the Disney executives, John DeCure, some of the same art directors that worked uh, on some of the Disney parks that really helped uh, originally design those. And, and a lot of our work actually is today is almost digging up those original <laughs> concepts and artworks and almost restoring yeah. Yeah. you know everything from original paint palettes and kind of rediscovering the sense of story and place yeah, no that was good ideas originally lost yeah <laughs> away from just kind of the the roller coaster wars yes. uh, and disinvestment in in some of the properties what what have you seen as far as the way the industry is uh, is almost separated out from you know the disney's versus the the regional parks um, either from a guest experience or the core you know metrics i mean it kind of started out as I mean, most parks were um, carnival midways i mean it was there there's roller coasters and they would move around and whatnot this is a you know amusement park if you will and disney kind of made the whole theme park genre if you will with indoor rides uh you know, with um, scenes and, and a whole guest experience not just going to the carnival um Somewhere in between those is the regional theme park, which has some elements of the you know dark rides and whatnot, and some elements of the carnival. So, and they in the development cost is, I today it's probably a hundred dollars per attendee for you know the kind of carnival, one hundred and fifty dollars per attendee for the, the amusement park, and probably upwards of two hundred dollars an attendee in development costs. Mm-hmm. So if you got a million people, it's like. $100 million, 250 or 500 And that, what you're going to pay as a guest is going to escalate on the same way the development costs. So it becomes, 
the mindset. That's why Knott's vision. is fifty dollars uh, for a day admission, and Disney's one hundred. Disney's exactly. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> There's it, a correlation, though. What he's saying is a correlation between how much money you put in and how many people will come. Right. Sure. I mean, hotel industry is the same. Actually, if you're going to put a hundred or hundred thousand dollars per room in development costs. You're going to be charging 100 bucks a night. If you're going to There's a difference between a Fairfield Inn versus, versus uh, JW exactly. Marriott or Ritz-Carlton, exactly. right? even though they're the same yeah. chain. Exactly. Uh, they're all Marriott. Yeah, it's all tied yeah. Yeah. You're going in, you're sleeping in a bed at each of them, but the experience is different, and you're willing to pay for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It pretty much is tied to you know, the, the cost of development. Yeah, let's let's talk through a case study real quick that uh, that's interesting to me um, that I know you guys uh, worked on the feasibility for. The uh, Knott's Berry Farm Soak City um, yes. They they had uh, a bunch of extra land, wanted to think about what they could do about that, and so people are asking the question, uh, is it worth it to pop this uh, a second gate. a second gate here at Knott's Berry Farm? That's the question that a, a, a park would ask, and they're going to come to folks like you to answer that question for them. Okay. Well, yeah. they, they didn't exactly have a bunch of extra land. They had a, <laughs> they had a small parcel of the parking lot that was like 13 acres. Yeah, that's they wanted right. to know if they wanted to do it there or not. Yeah, but the, and the reason he wanted the Soak City was was that it, you know these guys all just know what they did you know yeah and uh, they had they had a, a water park in in Sandusky and and they had a, you know they, anyway they they had a whole uh, complex of what they were going to do that worked and so they would, didn't want to stick with that to make a long story short so they said Jay we'd like to have a water park so and this is the property it's only this big you know it's 20 acres or whatever it was and parking's huge problem there i mean they didn't they almost couldn't handle what they had mm -hmm. and then uh anyway so we came back and said mm, the market sort of warrants maybe seven hundred thousand showing up but you've only got enough room to have half that much or something uh -huh. you know 400 or whatever we said 450. and the guy says we're not going to get 450 in yeah. this market. You got to be kidding. Well, the market's like five times bigger than with Sandusky. So, yeah, right. so you know, yeah, there's going to be a lot of people show up, and, well, and they yeah, got. You're not in Ohio, but, and yeah, it's right. But the, the, but the limiting, limiting factor is the speech. site. You know, we have 700,000 people that come here if you did it right and had a big enough deal, but you don't. So you only get about half. This is say 400,000 or something. And, uh, and that's what they got. <laughs> yeah. There's only so many people could park there, kind of, is what it was yeah. all about. Yeah. You know. So now it's 20 years in, and it seems to be like um, still, you know, drawing all the people and, and doing what it was uh, intended to do. And, and Exactly. Well, yeah. That's a nice problem to have. The site's too small. So, so you're always going to be at capacity. You're always going to be at capacity. <laughs> yeah, it was almost, a, it was almost an attendance we could guarantee because you yeah. know, they're making a half as big as they should have made it. And so it's always going to do 400,000 America. Uh. That's all that can show up, sort of. I mean, mm. it's one of those deals. Well, I'm, I'm, I am thrilled that, uh, you know, as, as we're collaborating with uh, Rafi Caprillian and his, uh, his team, uh, John, and the other uh, executives there. They, they, I think they've really uh, are understanding the potential, uh, I and mean, they've already understood the potential of, of particularly knots and that, that the, the uniqueness, uh, not just historically of that that park, but really the the potential as you, you've identified yeah. the, of the market and the the reinvestment that they've poured into that place is just continuing to pay off. So it's it's really kind of you know continuing to grease that flywheel. So that that's an exciting feature. Um, as we you know move uh, forward, I, I really wanted to make sure we had a chance to talk about some of the great collaborations, uh, a lot of which we're not allowed to talk about yet yep. <laughs> because right. of NDAs and the progress. But I think one that uh, you know is just a great again case study uh, that we're kind of in the middle of and and um, really still in kind of a, a an early phase. But uh, you know we've, we've been given permission to share a little bit about is some of the work we're doing around the Mount Rushmore area in South Dakota. And I think that's kind of, to your point, uh, Doug, that, that example of a case study of if you've got a market that, you know, is an established tourist market, you know, Mount Rushmore is pretty iconic. There's definitely an existing hotel, but it, there's indoor water park hotels, there's, uh, you know, roadside attractions. I, I kind of think of it as almost like a mini Branson or a mini Gatlinburg kind of in the making. Um, so, I mean, it's not that, you know, why would anyone think that anyone would visit this you know part of the world but you know it's also not uh um anaheim or central florida um you know you know share a little bit of that story in terms of how you, how you or we went about kind of you know scoping sizing just thinking through what that could and should be yeah well um the client group there's really two but there's one and it's a um 
kind of a, uh, a historical mining op, um, business. And as they play out the resources at one of the mines, then they have land that's no longer um, available for um, you know, extracting the natural resources. So they actually have two separate sites, one in the mountains across from Mount Rushmore and one in the city of uh, Rapid City, which is the major city in the area. Um, one and in this town. is Gateway City, right, right adjacent to Deadwood this, and yeah, the Black it, Hills. Yeah, if you're going to Black Hills, Badlands, Mount Rushmore, all of that, this is your kind of central. That's where, where you fly in, fly out. Fly where in, fly out, are. stay. Yep. Most of the hotel rooms are there, although they're pretty spread out. So this is a market of you know 100,000 people. It's a super small market in terms of residential of yeah. what we're doing in terms of residential population. They get probably some, somewhere around four million tourists that come over the course of the year to go to Mount Rushmore, go to the Badlands, see all that stuff. That said, there's virtually nothing in the kind of entertainment attractions um, resources there. They've got a lot of kind of real small you know petting zoos and caves to go into and whatnot, but it's nothing compelling, nothing worth more than an hour's worth of time. So our client group wants to um, take their two sites, and it's more, it's more not, not a highest and best use of these sites, but we want a legacy to our father. We want to bring some tourist attractions and whatnot to the South Dakota market, and this is much more, not philanthropic, but um, they just want a kind of legacy to their family. And so we collaborated with Storyland and Mel um, in kind of brainstorming, you know, what could we put here that's going to be attractive to these existing 4 million tourists and maybe bring some more. And um, yeah, we kind of went from there and had a variety of ideas on what might go there. Kind of did a quick and dirty feasibility study on that. And Storyland did a uh, preliminary master plan on that. Um, went back to the client group and we're kind of getting more into the nuts and bolts of what's actually going to go in there. Yeah, I know it's it's kind of we're trying to figure out how much we're allowed to say. say and how much not, but, you know, the, the key thing is I think it'll be a fun story that will uh, hopefully follow on the journey of uh, the podcast. It could be a great kind of live uh, yeah. case story, you know, as it's coming into fruition. Yeah, but, just uh, first look is that that it's it's feasible. It can work. It well, it's all there. about figuring out what is the right size and what's the right, uh, you know, um, what's right mix capacity, the yeah. right mix, and, and how do you handle uh, the different uh, markets and the weather patterns and all that good stuff. So uh, always, always fun to collaborate with you guys. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, gracing us. Yeah, <laughs> I'm really excited I know to you be guys, with you guys are, today. are busy, and uh, it's been uh, really great to be able to catch up, and uh, we might need to, to do some follow-ups. Again yeah, I think the, so. I think it would be really neat to follow the the projects that we just kind of hinted at today and see where it comes up in a year and in a, or less. And yeah, uh, that'd be fantastic. That'd be great. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for coming on the show, and uh, we hope to have you in soon. Okay. Well, thanks for having us. Happy thanks for having us. Yeah, it was fun. Well, Mel, we talked to Don and Doug a lot about projects where the yes, when they said this is a a feasible project, they said yes, it'll work then those projects lead to success. But uh, what what is it like for a developer, a media company, when the answer is actually, no, it's not going to work here. This isn't the right place for this type of project. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, Buzz was famous for was uh, knowing how to, to manage uh, Walt, <laughs> you know, the, the consummate visionary. <laughs> and one of the keys was, uh, you know, the, the wisdom to not... Uh, uh, say no, you know, if, uh, if, and, and really just not letting the, the idea or the vision kind of die on the vine, but really the, the right answer always being yes, if, because the, the reality is, uh, you know, for anyone with a basic assumption of algebra or math, you can always change uh, variables. You can always change assumptions to get the right answer. And so the, you know, his response was always yes, if, and really, the the if is the magic, you know, in terms of uh, of what makes the the possibilities happen. So, um, you know, whether it's uh, your project won't here work here or it won't work now, um, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, it it can't still be your project. But uh, maybe the project morphs in terms of uh, budget, scope, or schedule. Um, and really, I think uh, one of the key things we found is getting to the the heart of the the project the 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 why behind it what's the motivation um, and you know quite often 
um, we found that the motivation isn't simply, hey, we have to, you know, bring X number of uh, bank trucks full of cash to the bank every month. <laughs> there isn't like necessarily <laughs> a, 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 there might be a, a percentage or a ROI or ratio that's really more about kind of a minimum threshold for financial sustainability, but that's not really the driver. Um, and, uh, you know, again, once we get to the, the why behind the project, quite often we're able to kind of figure out how to get the right scope and scale uh, project in the right site to, to actually make something move forward. Yeah, I love it. Well, folks, it looks like our diesel is running low. And Mel, I think the feasibility of our making it back to the dock without rowing is 100% if we head back now. Shall we? We better. (laughs) Until next time. Thanks, Mel. The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. We want you to know that we don't take your listening for granted. We love to make the show, and we love that you love it too. Would you mind helping others find the show by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts? We'd really appreciate it. We want to thank our guests, Don and Doug Stewart of Economic Consulting Services. Have them perform a feasibility study for your next project by reaching out to Doug on LinkedIn or find them at economic-consulting-services.com. Get access to more stories and interviews at themedattraction.com. Start your own profile, discuss the latest creative advancements, and interact with your fellow theme park designers around the world. Follow the action on Instagram and Twitter at themedattraction, and join our active discussion group on LinkedIn. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com, or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at Skipper Freddy on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson. Other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Barry's the author of a brand new book on the history of regional theme parks with contributions from Rob Decker of Cedar Fair, Rick Bastrop, and our very own Mel McGowan. Imagineering an American Dream tells the story of regional theme parks and the strong-willed visionaries behind them. Some of the stories you may have heard, most you probably haven't, and it's a fascinating tale to tell. You know, Mel, Barry is known for his love of exotic pets, but can I be honest? I'm a little freaked out by his latest pet purchase. He filled his swimming pool with piranha. My wife and daughter, they're not afraid to take a swim, though. You see... They're man-eating piranha. Thanks for listening, folks.